while we come to the preaching of God's word, continue our worship, join me in John 17. John 17, where we see Jesus prepare his soul for his coming death. And he does that by turning to his father in prayer. John 17 being the longest prayer of Jesus recorded in all of the scriptures. And this is a profound glimpse that we are given into the intertrinitarian relationship between God the Father and God the Son. It's a prayer that shows the Son's love for his Father and his submission to his Father, yet it also shows his love for us as he once again, as he has done throughout every day of his ministry, he once again commits himself to his cruel cross. We see his concern for us in this prayer. Yes, he is praying for his own faithfulness, but he's also praying for his people's faithfulness, not only his apostles, but every believer through the centuries. And listen to his prayer for us. Look at verse 15. He prays that we would be kept from the evil one. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them, protect them, guard them from the evil one. He prays for us to be spiritually united to the Trinity in preserving faith. Verse 21 He's praying that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I'm in you, that they also may be in us. He's praying that we'd be united to the Trinity forever. And then in verse 24, he prays us into heaven. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. It's a profound prayer. Riches are impossible to exhaust. As we saw last time, this prayer is broken up into three sections. The first section is where we are this morning. It's in verses one through five, where Jesus prays for himself. The second section is in verses six through 19, where Jesus prays for his apostles. And then the third section is in verses 20 through 26, where Jesus prays for all believers, including us. We see that in verse 20. He's praying for those who believe in me through there, through the apostles' word. We read it in its completion last week. And what we saw that it's a serious prayer. It's spoken at a spiritually dark time as the evil one is about to have his way with Jesus. But this is not a dark prayer, far from it. Jesus is not dejected, though he knows what is in store for him. He's not despondent here. No, he's hopeful. Why? Because he knows to whom he prays. He knows that what approaches him is, notice verse one, the hour, the sovereign hour determined by his father. The predicted hour prophesied throughout the Old Testament. The hour that could not overtake him until the right time 
on his father's schedule. This is the hour of redemption for which he was sent from heaven to earth to accomplish. So indeed, the timing is dark and it is evil, but this is still God's hour. And thus Jesus is hopeful and he is confident. And what does he do? He turns to his father in prayer before he shouts, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, he applies Psalm 23 to himself here. He's about to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but he will fear no evil. Why? For he can turn to his faithful and sovereign and all wise and loving and always good father in prayer. So let's stop here for a moment. That's our privilege too. It's our privilege. We too, because we're united to Christ, can turn to our Father in prayer. Now we began looking at this prayer together last week in that first section where Jesus is praying for himself. He's consecrating himself to his coming cross. It's verses one through five. Let's read those five verses. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do now. Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Some have said this is the most sacred passage in all four gospels. This is the mountain peak of revelation as we hear the saving heart of Jesus express itself in prayer. There are five requests that Jesus makes here. Five requests. Each request is in relation to his coming cross. Each request the son is bringing before his loving father. We focused our time last week on request number one. It's the overarching request. The overarching request, Christ prays that the Father would be glorified through the cross. It's the overarching request here, that the Father would be glorified through the cross. That's verse one. Father, the hour of my death, the hour has come. My request is glorify your son, exalt your son, Honor your son, why? That the son may glorify you. This is the heart of Jesus. Jesus knows what the cross will cost him, but still, still his main concern as he heads to his death is that his father's glory would be seen. That his father's honor would be praised. Honor for the Father that necessitates the Father glorifying Jesus. But as we saw last time, 
The glory Jesus has in mind for himself is not what we would expect. This is the glory of shame. The glory of hanging on the cross. The honor of being treated as the suffering servant who would be crushed by the hand of the Father for the sin of others. That's the glory Jesus is requesting, the glory of punishment, the glory of divine wrath being placed upon him. Do that to me so that I glorify you. Jesus prays this because this is how the son would showcase the father's saving majesty in the most visible of ways. It is true. We can walk outside and on those three days out of the year when it's not cloudy, we can look up and we can see the stars and the heavens declare the glory of God. Even the rain declares the glory of God. Creation shows God's creative power, his eternality, his self-sufficient transcendence. That's his glory and that is true. But Christ, Christ's cross declares greater glory. Christ's cross declares the glory of God's grace, the glory of God's infinite mercy and unerring faithfulness and righteous anger. The cross declares the glory of forgiveness, the God's sovereignty over all evil, his patience to save. That's only seen through the cross. Only through the cross that those divine attributes are seen in their fullness. They're saving grace attributes and they shine most brightly when Jesus hangs on that tree. This is the pinnacle of glory. You can read it in Ephesians chapter one. As Paul says, give glory to God, how? To the praise of the glory of his grace. Exalt grace, his saving glory. So that's how Jesus begins his prayer. He submits himself to his father's redemptive will and he prays that the father would honor him by putting him on the cross and thus the father would be honored and glorified by Jesus as Jesus exhausts the father's wrath against sin and pays that necessary payment for all who will believe Verse one, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. It's overarching. It leads to these next four requests. Request number two. Jesus asks that the father be glorified, not by putting him on the cross now and pouring out wrath on him, but that the father would be glorified by accepting Christ's sacrifice for sinners. Glorify yourself by accepting my sacrifice. Notice verse two. Even as you gave him, referring to Jesus, authority over all flesh. So Jesus points to his own grandeur at this point. He points to his authority, his right to rule rule over everything. He has authority over all things because he created all things. He has authority over all things because he is truly God. 
He will be given authority over the world because he's the promised Messiah, the coming king. But that time is not now. That kingly authority, that coming kingly authority is not the authority Jesus is referring to here. He's not speaking of his kingly authority. He's speaking of his sacrificing authority. His saving authority. Remember back to John chapter 10, his authority to lay down his life to save others. I lay my life down on my own initiative. I have authority, the right to do just that, to lay down my life to save. So here Jesus is drawing on his authority to purchase salvation through his death. Continue verse two. The authority to purchase salvation for all flesh, all humanity. It's not referring to every single person. That's universalism. That's not the point here. He will purchase salvation for all flesh in the sense of every gender, every nationality, every social status. He dies for sinners from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. But notice there's a limiting of this coming death. There's a limiting of this flesh. It's defined in the next description. This is all flesh, all whom you, Father, have given him, given to Christ. So Christ is going to offer himself for all whom the Father has chosen to be saved from before the foundation of the world. All whom the Father will draw to his Son in saving faith. All whom the Father sends his Spirit to regenerate. Going to the cross for those whom you have chosen, you've given me. We saw this back in John 6, this phrase, who comes to Christ in saving faith? Who comes to Christ? Answer, only those whom the Father gives me will come to me, Jesus says. There's a sovereign giving, sovereign choosing. Notice verse six here. This phrase continues. Verse six, I have manifested your name, Jesus says. I've revealed your truth, your nature, not to every single person, but to the men who you gave me out of the world. Select group. Verse nine, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. They've been sovereignly selected. Why? For they are yours. Yours by choice. Yours by grace. Yours by a sovereign determined love. So bring this together then. What's Jesus' prayer? It's this, Father, glorify yourself by accepting my sacrifice for sin, the sacrifice I am about to offer you as I lay down my life. Apply my authoritative payment to those who are yours. Apply my death to those you have chosen, to those you have given me, to everyone who comes to you, Father, through me, through faith. That's why Jesus finishes in verse two, be pleased, Father, 
for me to give through my death to give your chosen ones eternal life, eternal life through my authoritative death, my sacrificing death. Let my death grant them life. That's Jesus' prayer. Now let's make three applications here. Three applications from Jesus' request. The first is this. Only Jesus can grant eternal life to the sinner. Only Jesus can grant eternal life to the sinner. That is clear from Jesus' words. Let's put it this way. Use Jesus' words. Only Jesus can offer the authoritative saving sacrifice accepted by his father. The source of eternal life is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. And so if you are resting on any other payment for your sin, if you're resting on anything else other than this authoritative payment, then please understand whatever you are resting on carries no weight with God. It has no saving authority with God. The Father only accepts the sacrifice of his son and only for those who come to Jesus in saving faith. If you are not resting on Christ and Christ alone, confess him today. There's a second application here. This saving authority of Christ is the very reason we proclaim the gospel today. Why do we go and make disciples in a world that hates us and hates that message? That's our command. Go and make disciples. Why, how can we call the hard-hearted and spiritually blind and spiritually dead sinner to come to Christ in saving faith? Just think of everything we learn in John chapter 15. The world hates you and it will always hate you. It will hate this message. So why do we proclaim the gospel? Here's why, Matthew 28, because all authority has been given to Christ in heaven and on earth. That's why. We don't go with our own authority. We have none. We have no authority to change the hardest of hearts, but Christ does. What we see here in John 17 is that Christ has the authority to pay the penalty for the grossest of sins. So this is why we proclaim the gospel in this world. It is because the one who possesses all authority is with you, how long? Always, even to the end of the age. That's why we proclaim the gospel. There's a third application here. If you have come to Christ in saving faith, If the Father has accepted Christ's sacrifice on your behalf, then you can rest assured that your salvation is secure, that your salvation will never be lost. Again, why? Because the death of Jesus is the authoritative sacrifice for sin. He's paid for your sin in full. This is why Jesus could say back in John chapter six, all that he, the father has given me, all who come to the father through Christ, whom the father chooses, everyone who 
The Father accepts the sacrifice of Jesus for all he has given me, I lose nothing. None of them. It's because of the authority of the son's sacrifice. That authority guarantees the security of the believer. He loses none for whom he dies. That's our security. So you have the second request here. Father, let my life, let my life grant your chosen ones, let my death rather grant your chosen ones life. Let my death do that, accept my sacrifice. There's a third request that Jesus makes. Request number three. Jesus also prays that the Father would be glorified by reconciling his chosen ones to himself. Accept my sacrifice, but now reconcile them to yourself. Because of our sin, we enter this world as enemies of God. But through Christ's cross and because of his payment for sin, we can become friends of God. That's reconciliation. That enemies are made friends. Well, that's what Jesus prays for in verse three. Notice, this is eternal life. So Jesus has just prayed to purchase and to give eternal life for all whom the Father has chosen. He just did that in verse two. Here, Jesus now defines what eternal life is. This is eternal life, that they, those given to the Son by the Father, the ones for whom the Son will die, that they may know you. So often, so often we think of eternal life as a duration of life. We have eternal life because we're going to live forever. That's a part of it that doesn't exhaust it. More than duration of life, eternal life is a quality of life. Eternal life is an intimacy of relationship with your creator. Again, that's reconciliation. That's what Adam forfeited when he sinned in the garden. He was removed from the presence of God. It's an intimacy of relationship that's restored. That's what the word know means, that they may know you, not cognitive knowledge, just know about you, but relational, intimate, loving fellowship. So Jesus prays for restoration, prays for reconciliation. He prays that God would restore what he created us to enjoy, life with him, communion with transcendent God. And continue verse three, Jesus calls him the only true God, the only God who exists. Let's draw application. The only God who can satisfy. Oh, there's a lot of gods out there. We read about them in Psalm 97. Gods upon gods, small g gods. None of them satisfies. There's only one true God. And eternal life is the privilege of experiencing forgiveness 
for every sin you have committed against that God. Eternal life is the privilege of being the recipient of his love, which is poured out upon us without measure. Why does he do this? So that we will know him so that we will be satisfied in him, so that we will commune with him and worship him. Again, that's reconciliation, so that enemies would be made friends. And this is not something we wait for until we die. Eternal life does not begin when we die. The word know here is in the present tense. Eternal life begins the moment we come to Christ in saving faith. He gives us right now. If you are here and you have come to Christ in saving faith, you have eternal life now. This is why Jesus adds at the end of verse three, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, again, sent to die. Again, unite these. Jesus says there's only one true God, but now Jesus adds himself to the mix to know God and Christ. That's eternal life. This is astounding for Jesus to say. It would be blasphemy if Jesus did not share the same divine nature as the Father. Jesus' point here is simply this. The only way someone can know God the Father in a saving and reconciling way, the only way someone can know the Father in that way is if they come to know the Son whom the Father has sent. To know the Father is to know the Son. You can't get to the Father except through the Son. We see that all throughout John's gospel. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. That's referring to the Father. No one has seen the Father at any time. So the question is then, then how do we get to him? How do we know him? Here's how the only begotten son, the son of God, who is in the bosom of the Father, the son who knows the Father is the one who will share the Father with us. That's how we get to the Father. He has explained him. He's provided access to him. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one knows the Father but through me. That's what Jesus said back in John 3. The Father loves the world. He gives his Son why? So that if we believe in him, we have eternal life. Mark Jones writes this, it's key. He says, Jesus' prayer concerning eternal life shows us that Christianity concerns so much more than having a get out of jail, i.e. hell, free card. Christian life is not primarily something negative, what we have been saved from. No, Christianity is primarily positive, whom we have been saved to. We are saved in order to know God and Christ, to live in communion with them for eternity. 
to know that the Father sent his best, the Son, for the worst, sinners, should provide great impetus for us to know more of this God filled with mercy, grace, wisdom, and truth. By knowing Christ, we know God, and by knowing God, we know Christ. They're inseparable. And that's the prayer of Jesus here. Those whom the Father chooses would know him. This is why John wrote this book. These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing in him, coming to him in saving faith, you will have life, eternal life life, this reconciled life in his name through him. If you have come to the Father through Christ in saving faith, if you right now are experiencing this reconciled life of intimacy and communion and fellowship with the Father and the Son, here's why you're experiencing it. Here's why. It is because the Father answered Jesus' prayer for you. That's why. Grace be to him. Prayer number one. Glorify yourself, Father, by placing me on the cross. Prayer number two. Glorify yourself, Father, by accepting my sacrifice for sin. Prayer number three. Glorify yourself, Father, by reconciling all I purchased through my death. This leads to request number four. Jesus prays that the Father be glorified by receiving his perfect life of obedience. By receiving Christ's perfect life of obedience on our behalf. So understand, Jesus did not come from heaven to earth to only die. That's why he does not come from heaven to earth for a weekend, right? Why not just come on Thursday and die and then resurrect? Why? Because that's not the only reason he came. Jesus also came from heaven and earth to live. Specifically to live the perfect life that we could not live but are required to live. Christ came to do what the first Adam failed to do, to live in complete obedience, full sinlessness to his father. We need this sinless savior, this righteous savior for two reasons. Number one, we need a sinless savior because forgiveness of sins is not enough to enter heaven. That just makes us neutral. You're forgiven but you have no righteousness to enter. We need a righteous savior so that we can be credited with his righteousness and thus accepted by holy God. We need a righteous savior so that we can be justified, declared righteous. This is what 2 Corinthians 5 says, that God the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Our sin credited to righteous Jesus so that we might become the righteousness of God in him so that his righteousness would be credited to us. 
That's justification. It's not enough to be forgiven. We need to be credited with righteousness. It can't be our righteousness. We don't have any. All of our righteousness are filthy wrecks. But we also need a righteous savior, a sinless savior, so that he could pay for our sins. If he has sin, he needs to pay for his sin. But if he's righteous, he can pay for our sin. So our salvation from sin, our acceptance by God requires both the righteous life of Christ lived for us and his substitutionary death died for us. All of that hinges on a life of perfection and then the cross. Well, that's the background for verse four. Jesus offers his father his perfect life of obedience on our behalf. Here it is, father, here it is. Verse four, I glorified you on earth. I honored you in the very realm, earth, the very realm where Adam failed you. I'm the second Adam. I chose at every moment of my life to obey you no matter the cost. I exalted you, Father, by believing your word every time Satan tempted me to sin. Exactly what Adam failed to do. Continue verse four. I glorified you on earth having accomplished. I finished. Similar to what Jesus will say later on, the end of his life. It is finished. All is accomplished. Well, here Jesus is not talking about finishing his work on the cross. It's not talking about finishing the work of paying the penalty for sin, exhausting God's wrath. No, Here, Jesus is speaking of finishing, accomplishing, completing his life of obedience, his righteous life for us. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you, Father, gave me to do. I did it all. I always obeyed you. beginning of Jesus's ministry, he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, to live that life of perfect obedience. And now Jesus ends his ministry and he says, I've done it all. Here's my perfect life offered to you. And so that when chapter 18 opens, Jesus will head to the cross. He'll be betrayed, bound, head to the cross as the unblemished, sinless lamb. He has no sin. He will come to the cross as the second Adam who will not bring sin into the world, but he will purchase salvation for the world. One commentator put it this way, although the final act of his career remained to be performed, that's the cross, final act, Jesus asserted that he had completed his task. Though he was aware that he had the option of refusing the cross and so escaping death, he had resolved to complete the work for which he had been sent. 
to all intents and purposes, it was already done, though the obstacles were many, and though the prospect was terrifying. Jesus never once faltered from doing the Father's will. And that's the life that's credited to our account. It's a great contrast here in the Old Testament before the high priest could offer a sacrifice for the people. The priest would first have to offer a sacrifice for himself, but not Jesus. He has no sacrifice to offer for himself. He has accomplished the work which was given him to do and thus his prayer, accept my perfect life on behalf of my people. And again, that is the life that is credited to us. And again, by way of application, this is why Paul can write, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who could ever bring a charge against us who are in Christ and clothed with his righteousness? The answer is no one. No one. We're secure. Why? Because God is the one who justifies. God is the one who has credited the life of his son to us. So who's the one who condemns? The only one who can condemn is God. God has already accepted the life of his son on our behalf. Fifth request, finally. Request number five. Father, Glorify yourself by welcoming me back into your presence. Glorify yourself by welcoming me back into your presence and thus sealing my sacrifice for sin on behalf of your people. That's how Jesus ends this prayer for himself. He looks beyond the cross. Verse five. Now, Father, glorify me, honor me, exalt me, not by putting me on the cross. That was the prayer in verse one. But here it's different. Glorify me together with yourself in your presence. And again, this would be blasphemy if Jesus was not God. Jesus knows the Old Testament. There's only one true God to what Jesus said in verse three. Christ knows that this God will not give his glory to another. Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. God is jealous, rightfully so, for his own glory, his praise, his honor, his exaltation. God, for him to be God, cannot share his glory with any created thing or person. Can't do it. But the son is no created inferior being. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Like the father, the son of God is eternal. In the beginning was the word, was the son. Like the father, the son shares the same nature as God. The word, the son was God. 
So it's not blasphemy for Jesus to pray, Father, glorify me together with yourself. We share the same nature. Glorify me, now watch, with the glory, the eternal majesty which I had before the world was. Let's put it in these words. Once I sacrificed myself on the cross, welcoming back into your presence, Father. Once I exhaust your wrath for sin, remove the veil I took upon myself when I left heaven for earth. When I cry out into your hands, I commit my spirit. Father, I pray that you'll answer that prayer. You'll receive me. I'm praying Psalm 16, that you will not abandon my soul to shield, to the grave. Don't leave me there. Do not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Resurrect me from the dead. Seat me at your right hands. Declare me to be your son with the power of resurrection. That's the prayer. Reestablish that unhindered fellowship I once enjoyed. Reunite me to yourself and restore the full measure of my pre-existent glory. Restore the full measure of my pre-existent glory. Verse one, glorify me by putting me on the cross. To now verse five, glorify me by seating me at your right hand. Why, why? so that the Father will be magnified through the work of his Son. All goes back to verse one. Glorify me so that I will glorify you. Now there's another reason though why Jesus requests his glory to be given back to him. Yes, it's to glorify his Father. That is key, that is primary there's a second reason Jesus prays this, and it's for us. It's so that we, his people, will one day see his glory and be satisfied in full in him forever. I'm skipping ahead, but it's worth it. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me will be with me where I am. He's praying us into heaven. And here's why Jesus wants us to be where he is. Here's why Jesus prays for the Father to return that glory to him. Here's why. So that they may see my glory. It's not just for Christ. It's an overflow so that we see it. Give me back my eternal glory because that is what will make heaven, heaven for my people. Return to me that glory because it is indeed that glory that will satisfy them, that will instill joy forever in them. He has us in mind. It's quite a prayer, isn't it? This is quite a savior. He's concerned for his father's glory and he is committed to our salvation, our eternal joy. 
And with that, having consecrated himself to his cross, Jesus then turns his attention away from himself. That was his prayer for himself. He turns his attention away from himself. And in love from verses six and following, he will begin to pray for his people. And he will bring us, let that sink in, he will bring us before the throne of his father's grace. And he will offer perfect intercession on our behalf. You have a savior who is praying for you right now. And that's where we'll pick it up next time. Father, we give you honor for the glory of our savior. And Father, we are humbled, I trust and I pray that we are humbled because of the prayers that Christ offered to you for himself. Oh, what a glorious savior he is. What a loving savior he is. May we hear those prayers and be filled with hope. May we find our security in Christ, our identity in him. And like Christ, may we do everything to the praise of your glory. Pray this in Christ's name, amen.